Today is the second week of our series, Live Well. We're talking about how to live well in challenging times. And the last few years have probably challenged our health and well-being more than any other times in our lives. We all have our own stories, of course, things we've experienced in the past, but collectively as a group, would you agree? Probably the last few years have been the hardest that we have ever faced together. We've experienced heightened anxiety from COVID fears and strained relationships over political differences in this country and what's happening in this country. And we've probably been tempted to overeat and to exercise less or overdrink. And on top of that, many of us have embarked on a spiritual journey that really wasn't even our own choice because the past few years have revealed to us, helped us to see more clearly what our spiritual views are and how maybe they've changed over time. Can you identify with that at all? And maybe you experienced, you know, maybe you were a church in the past and you realize over the past few years, you know, I, I don't think I'm where a lot of these people are. And their view of faith and their view of what's going on in our country again and our, their view of other people. I don't see the love of Jesus here. And, and on top of everything else, you've been launched into a spiritual journey where it's anxiety producing. And there is fear and you wonder, what do I really believe and where is this headed and how do I figure it all out? What does it mean for my life? And so in this series, we're exploring time-tested wisdom from the scripture about how to live well. And today we're talking about how to live well emotionally, which may be the biggest challenge uh, of the time that we live in. So if I could start by asking you, if you were going to describe how difficult the past five or six years have been for you emotionally, what words would you use? If you were gonna tell somebody about your emotional journey over the past five or six years, what words would you use? How about exhausting? Would I agree with that? Brutal, torturous. I don't think I'm overdoing it, am I? Some of you just might just use curse words. I don't know. You might string a bunch together if you really wanted to accurately describe, but the, the combination of what's the political realities of our country and the COVID pandemic have put us on an emotional roller coaster. And the truth is there've been a lot of lows on that coaster. The Cleveland Clinic recently found that the pandemic's lingering effects continue to have an adverse impact. Americans are more likely to feel stressed, anxious, or depressed during the fall 2021 phase of the pandemic than during fall of 2020. It's gone up by 10 points. 60% of Americans say they're stressed now as opposed to 50% a year ago. Last week I shared that the CDC found that the percentage of Americans who reported symptoms that could be diagnosed as anxiety or depression had doubled from 2014. It was over 40% of Americans last year. Most of us have struggled to be emotionally healthy over the past few years. And so let me ask you some other questions. Have you worried that you or someone you love will have a bad reaction to COVID in the past couple of years? Have you lost somebody to COVID? Have you felt frustration over the way some people in our country have responded to COVID? Are you worried about the future of America? Were you exhausted by what has happened in America over the past few years? Have you felt disgust or outrage at the way some people have behaved in our country? Have you experienced strained relationships over politics? Have you experienced a job change or a financial challenge? Have you been outraged or discouraged while consuming social media? You're like, I can't say amen loud enough to some of these. Has your sleep been affected? Has your sleep been affected over the past couple of years? Has your experience of religion made your emotional life more challenging? 
And have you changed churches? Maybe you don't have to respond if you don't. If you answered yes to all those, would you mind raising your hand? It's an awful lot of hands. So much that we've been through emotionally uh, over the past few years. The New York Times ran an article in April, said there's a name for the blah that you're feeling. It's called languishing. And they write, languishing is the neglected middle child of mental health. It's the void between depression and flourishing. The absence of well-being. You don't have symptoms of mental illness, but you're not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. Languishing dulls your motivation, disrupts your ability to focus, and triples the odds that you'll cut back on work. It appears to be more common than major depression, and in some ways it may be a bigger risk factor than mental illness. And so perhaps that helps to describe, just to put some kind of language to what you've experienced. But here's where we're, where we're headed today. Is it possible that you and I could come out of this experience, as unbelievable as this may sound, is it possible that we could come out of this experience emotionally healthier than we were before all of this started to happen? Is it possible that we could come out of this better, more emotionally well, because of what we're being forced to learn than we were even several years ago. So here's, that's where we're headed today. So let's start with some basic uh, points, some basics about emotions. If we want to journey toward emotional well-being, let's start here by replacing emotional myths with the truth. Right? We're gonna replace some myths with the truth. So let's get some myths out of the way. Myth number one, I'm not an emotional person. Do you know anybody who's ever said that? Isn't it super annoying when people say that? Or maybe it's you who says that. I'm not an emotional person. And of course, we all know people who are naturally emotional expressive, emotionally expressive. That's probably what we mean by that. There are calm, even keel people who just don't express emotion very much. But however, what's the truth here? Everybody is an emotional person, including you. You're a human being, and every human being is emotional. Even people that you don't expect to express their emotion and be aware of their emotion can, can be that sometimes. For example, Dwayne The Rock Johnson has shared openly about his battle with depression. Did you know that? And he writes, it won't be on the screen, but he, he, write, I found, or he writes, I found that with depression, one of the most important things you can realize is that you're not alone. You're not the first to go through it, and you're not going to be the last to go through it. So it's cool when high profile people show that they're emotional, even if you might, you may not expect them to be emotional. Myth number two, I shouldn't feel the way I feel. Rhetorical question, have you felt that way? Have you told yourself that over the past few years? And this can be for lots of reasons. I shouldn't feel the way I feel because maybe you thought things are going well in my life, but I feel bad. So I should, I mean, it could be that. It also could be that a lot of religious people struggle with this myth because they feel guilt and shame around experiencing the full range of human emotions. And they realize that they feel a certain way, but then they think, oh, I shouldn't feel that way, I'm bad. Maybe you have felt guilt and shame around your emotions. Maybe you feel angry. Maybe there are times you were outraged at people. Maybe there were times you had violent thoughts that you didn't act on, of course. 
But maybe it scared you. I shouldn't feel this way. There are people who have been programmed that Christians are always supposed to be happy. And I shouldn't feel this way. What's the truth? All of your emotions are valid. And so you don't have to hide your emotions. Once again, you're a human being, and that means you experience the full range of human emotions. We quoted Dwayne The Rock Johnson, so now the only natural person to quote is Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, of course, had a gift for taking complex concepts and phrasing them in a way that a child could understand. Again, it won't be on the screen, but listen to what Mr. Rogers says about emotions. Anything that's human is mentionable. I love that. Anything that's human is mentionable. And anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. When we can talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting, and less scary. If Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Mr. Rogers can agree on something, maybe, maybe we should listen up. All human emotions are mentionable and you can be honest about your feelings. The last myth, people who manage their emotions are just naturally good at it. Have you ever thought that? And of course we know people just by virtue of their personality, they're, they're emotionally expressive, they're emotionally in touch, they wear their heart on their sleeve, and we just, we just figure that, well, they're good at it and I'm not. So I just can't uh, increase my emotional wellness to be like that person. Well, what's the truth? As hard as this may be to, to believe, for some folks, you can increase your emotional wellness just like anybody else. You can build your emotional muscles. You can learn just like anything in life. And no, you may not be as natural at it as some other person, but you can still learn to live well. And so how can we become more emotionally healthy through this time, after this time, than we were before? So we replace myths with the truth. And then secondly, we become aware of how we feel. Become aware, just to be able to know how we're feeling. And I'm, I'm gonna share a little bit about my own life uh, today. And, and to be honest with you, this was a tough sermon to write. I was up late last night you know, trying to put the finishing touches on this one. I think partly because it was emotional for me because like everybody else, we've been through so much, correct? And it's hard. It's hard to distill it. It's hard to even make sense of it, to name it at times and, and to feel stuff that we don't want to feel. But I want to share a little bit out of my own life as well. And, and uh, one of the most important lessons I ever learned to help me emotionally, I learned uh, back when I started seminary it's been a long time ago, but my, my master's degree is actually in pastoral counseling. And I went through a counseling cohort where some people at the end of the two years, they went off the clinical counseling route, and then I went the, the pastor route. Um, and for the first year of my seminary degree, they required counseling for everybody, which is absolutely brilliant because nobody can mess people up like a pastor. So it's a good idea. I mean, they, they're onto something by requiring counseling. So the entire first year of my master's degree, I went to counseling, 18 sessions. And it was an absolute gift. And like a lot of people, you know, when I was growing up, I had a difficult experience growing up, a difficult time in, in my home. Uh, my biological mother was there, she raised me. My biological father was not, but there were issues regardless. And, and early in the counseling sessions, I was telling my counselor just about my experience growing up and, and she asked me a question that uh, sounded so simple 
And at the time, it just blew me away because I couldn't answer it. And the question she asked me was, how do you feel right now? I really couldn't answer the question. Now, maybe some of you are like, man, what's wrong with Ryan? Maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm not really, I'm not an emotional person again. I'm not in touch enough with my feelings to always be able to answer. How do you feel right now? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. And I wasn't able to really articulate it. And, and then she also wanted, wanted me to discover why I feel that way. How do you feel right now and why? And I was really lost there. And so she, she handed me a sheet of paper and it had columns of emotion words on it. I felt like I was back in kindergarten, like, you know, kindergarten emotion class where it was like, I feel sad. I feel happy. And look, see spot run, see Jane jump. And I felt like I was just learning all over again to put words to my feelings. It was kind of embarrassing. And then to the, to the question, why? I'm like, I don't know. I really don't know. And so she gave me homework. She said, what I want you to do is take this sheet with you and kind of look over it. And then wherever you go, even if you're drive, driving, don't look at the sheet, but study it beforehand. And when you stop at a red light, you ask yourself the question, how do I feel right now and why? And I mean, it just sounds silly. And, and I felt foolish, but I couldn't answer the question. So I think she was on to something. So I, I said, okay, well, I'll do it. And I remember the next day, I drove to the church building where I worked at the time. And I stopped at a red light. How do I feel right now? I remember the sheet and I kind of named my feeling. Here's how I feel right now. Okay. Well, why do I feel that way? And it was early in the morning. Well, nothing's really happened to me today. And so, whoa, whoa, where is this emotion coming from? And then there were questions that she shared with me that, that helped me. So like, when have I felt this before? Did I feel this emotion earlier today? When have I felt this emotion before at any time in my life? This week have I felt this emotion? When do I remember feeling this emotion for the first time? And then is this emotion connected to any particular experience in my life? If you are like me and you struggle to, to always answer that question, be aware of how you're feeling, maybe this would be helpful to you. Let's say it's anger. Well, when did I feel this emotion first today? Well, when I woke up in the morning, I went to the bathroom and I started doom scrolling on Facebook and I saw all the outrageous things. Sorry, it's not Facebook, it's um, Meta, correct? <laughs> Facebook changed, so it's gonna make everything better now. The name change is all we needed. Everything's better now, correct? Yeah, since the sarcasm. And so I felt anger when I doom scrolled today, all right. And have I felt this emotion before? Well, yeah, I felt it last night when I was doom scrolling before I went to bed. Reading about all the outrageous things that happened. And more seriously, when do you remember feeling this emotion for the first time? Maybe, maybe you deal with anger that goes back to your teenage years. I, don't, I mean, I don't know. However, you would answer these questions. Is this emotion most connected to any particular experience in my life? Well, that time when this person did this to me, I was angrier than I've ever been before. And you might discover, as you ask yourself, how do I feel right now and why? You might discover that there has been a thread for a long time of this particular emotion that started in some intense experience in the past and it was never really fully resolved 
And now it just gets, it's like it snowballs. These things get added to it every time we have an experience. And for me, that was a breakthrough. You know, by the third stoplight, I was sobbing. I realized, oh, this is how I feel. And this is how it feels to name it. And to know how many times I've felt this and where it comes from. And I've been imprisoned by this. And, and now, now that I can do something about it. And so I remember going back and telling her and, and about my experience. And, and, and she said, well, just like we talked about last week. She said, it sounds like you need to grieve something that happened in the past. And you weren't really able to fully grieve that. You maybe didn't even know that you needed to grieve that loss that you experienced. And then now, yeah, it just snowballs. And every time you feel that, it's all connected. And I remember asking her, how long does grieving take? <laughs> like, that's where I was, you know? And she's like, however long it takes. But we just express it. And it always takes longer than we want. But we talk to people, we express it. And over time, those emotions of grief fade and we start to feel better. So for me, this was a major, major step in my life to be able to become aware of how I actually feel, what's going on in my emotional life and why, where did it come from? To be able to name it, to be aware of it. So we replace lies with the truth about emotion and then we become aware of our emotions. And then from there, now we can do something about it. And this, again, like I said, I had trouble even writing this because this could be a six or eight week series. I'm like, so how am I going to narrow this down and make it relevant in a way that we can all you know, gain from it? And I thought, for, especially for, for those of us who are you know, church people or you know, we, whatever you would call yourself, religious or spiritual, whatever you are, a lot of times I think this is what we need to hear. Once we become aware, give yourself permission to experience wellness. Give yourself permission to experience. For some of us, let's name this. Our religious background is the problem. Or it's part of the problem, at least. Our religious beliefs that were given to us actually keep us from experiencing well-being. Most American Christians probably think of their faith in terms of good and evil, innocence and guilt, in legal terms, heaven and hell, bad and good. Correct, are you with me on this? In legal terms. And that's not how the biblical communities viewed their faith. They had a view of God and religion and spirituality that was more holistic more therapeutic, as much as that may be difficult for us to believe, especially those of us who come from more fundamentalist Christian backgrounds, because that's all about black and white, right or wrong, in or out, legal terms, uh, punishment, justice, correct? And we think, we think of our faith in terms of a legal framework, but that's not how the biblical communities thought of their faith. They saw life as a more connected whole. They are more Eastern people than American culture. And so, for example, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, set in the 700s BC. So we're talking about 2,700 years ago. And Isaiah was written in a time in which his country was in decline and under attack. 
And that produces stress on a people, doesn't it? Just use your imaginations. That's the time that the prophet Isaiah lived in. And the book of Isaiah is all about proclaiming that no matter how bad things get, God will eventually bring a better day. Doesn't that sound good? Is that a message that we could all benefit from now? And they, they have this saying, and Isaiah uses this a lot, the day of the Lord. Meaning someday things will be better. The day when God really acts and breaks through, the day of the Lord will come and things will be so much better. But what we want to do is we want to have the day of the Lord in our sights so we can take steps to live toward that in our own lives and collectively as a people. And there was particularly one word, one experience that they looked forward to experiencing as a people when the day of the Lord will come. So let's, let's read here, Isaiah chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. And we'll just keep going here. Let's pay particular attention to verse three. You will keep in perfect, what? Peace. Those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. You'll keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays uh, on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. Now, when we read that word peace in verse three, it's the word, the Hebrew word, shalom. And you've probably heard that word before. It's the Hebrew word for peace. It occurs 250 times in the Hebrew Bible and then the Greek version, because the New Testament's in Greek, erene occurs 100 times. And Isaiah speaks more about shalom than any other book in the Bible. So we translated peace in English but like a lot of translation, it gets a little bit gets lost in translation, or a lot here actually. And so the word shalom means far more than peace. We think of peace as in just not war. But shalom means so much more than that. Shalom can mean wholeness, completeness, well-being. It's the basis of this entire series. Peace, justice, salvation, even prosperity. And that can get twisted up with the prosperity gospel. But the idea is that shalom is a much bigger concept than our word peace. Shalom means well-being. And for many of us here, your religion has actually made it harder for you to experience shalom than if you didn't have that religion at all. And so uh, my wife was raised in a, a conservative Christian home just like I was, and, and, and pop Christianity seems to put forth this idea that to be a Christian means that you let unhealthy people encroach on your boundaries way more than you would if you were not a Christian. And even if, you're, if you have some semblance of health and boundaries, a lot of times as believers, we read things like turn the other cheek or love your enemies, and we just will let people mistreat us. We'll let toxic people affect our lives in ways that keep us from well-being because we think that that's what it means to be a good, loving Christian. So my wife is an elementary school teacher now. And imagine what the pandemic has been like. 
for teachers. Some of you are teachers and you know. Other essential workers are there on the front lines. Most kids you know, aren't wearing masks. Here in Arizona, it was mandated that they, you, the school couldn't make them wear a mask. There's been no vaccine for kids until now. It's awesome, it's, it's coming up. And so she's in a room with no ventilation and 30 students, and she's got kids at home that are unvaxxed, and she's trying to protect them from COVID. And a lot of teachers have felt like they're just marching out there to whatever happens, to some you know, Petri dish, and, and they don't know how it's gonna affect their family. And my wife posted on Facebook that she's looking forward to vaccines being available for kids, and, and you know, she's made a few of those posts as we've gotten updates, and then when she would make a post like that, there are a couple of people from our, our background who went to the same you know, super Christian religious school that we went to, and, and they would post what amounts to propaganda on her Facebook page against vaccines and things. It's not scientifically correct. It was, it was very politically uh, loaded. And, and every time that she would post about vaccines or anything like that, these people would post on her Facebook page. And like me, she was raised, oh, you love people, and, and you just, you turn the other cheek. And, and a few months ago, she said, this person just posted this wild piece of propaganda on my Facebook page, and, and, and I've had interaction with them in the past on Facebook, but they just keep doubling down on conspiracy theories. And she was venting about it. And, and finally, you know, we have the same feelings, we come from the same place, and so I struggle with it just like she does, but I finally said, you know what, you've been, you've been really nice. And you've had discussions with them, and you've presented facts to them, and it hasn't worked. Why don't you just block them? And both of us, you know, are these good Christian kids, you know, from a Christian school. Oh my goodness, you know, can we do that? And, and so we gave each other permission. Just, just block them. You know, we've, we've, we've loved and we've talked and we've, we've gone back and forth and now they're just using our Facebook page as a propaganda outlet. And, and she just needed permission and I needed that permission too. I needed the discussion that she and I had together that night. Just block them. When you love people and you have talks and you, and, and you try and you reach out, there are people that you should just block. And we gave each other permission to live well. We gave each other permission to take steps. Especially, no, we're not gonna let people just post this on our Facebook so that other people see it too. Some of us were just raised in religious environments where we need permission to trust well. Some of us have struggled with mental illness or emotional challenges and, and you were raised in a Christian community and maybe you shared with somebody what you were really going through. It could be you know, what would be diagnosable as depression or anxiety or something else and, and somebody just said to you, well, you just need to trust God. You just need to trust God more. God's gonna come through. Just have faith and, 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 and miraculously, if you just trust God, you know, you're gonna feel better and, and you can read the Bible and you can see that, correct? Let's look at verse three again. Isaiah 26, verse three, you will keep in perfect peace, shalom. Those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you, well, there it is. It's on the dirty, grimy screen, you can see it. Just trust, just trust God. Now, if you wanna be a thinking follower of Jesus, here's the very next thing you should think when you read the phrase or hear the phrase, 
Trust God. You want to know what it is? Trust God to do what? That should be the, the next thing you think. Trust God to do what? Well, you just need to trust God. Well, trust God to do what? What am I trusting God to do? What does it mean to trust God? Does it mean that God will magically lower my anxiety level? If I just trust God, magically, I won't be depressed anymore. A psychiatrist could prescribe medicine, but no, I'm just gonna trust God and magically. Now, good Christian people would call it a miracle. But you, a lot of times you can just call it magic. Magically, God will just take away my depression. If I have exhausting relationships in the time we live in, will God just magically fix my exhausting relationships? Is that what it means to trust God? If I'm feeling financial stress, will God magically pay my bills? Will God send me paychecks? And God will just magically do that. Is that what it means to trust God? Is that, is that what it means? Is that how it works? Can we be honest with each other? 99.9% of the time, the answer is no. That's not how it works most of the time. Some people might say all the time. That's not what it means to trust God. So if trusting God leads to shalom and well-being, and you've tried trusting God, and it's not leading to shalom or well-being, then that's not what it means to trust God. Are you following me? It means something else then to trust God. Something else other than God will just magically take away depression. Or God will just magically do something else. So what does it mean to trust God and experience shalom, well-being? For example, just rattle, rattle some off here. For example, most of us know the greatest commandment, love God and your neighbor. Does loving your neighbor mean that I need to let my wacky relative Facebook message me whenever they want? Propaganda, racist jokes, anti-science, post it on my Facebook page. Is that what it means to trust God? No. You can love your neighbor without letting them torture you or use your social media as a propaganda outlet. Another example, are you tired and run down? One of the commandments is to honor the Sabbath day. Once again, we have received a view of religion that is largely legal. And so when I just said that, honor the Sabbath day, you probably felt some measure of guilt about whether or not you honor the Sabbath day or you thought, no matter what he says, I'm not going to feel guilty anymore. Because that's just the, the framework that we have been given, right or wrong, good or bad. You should honor the Sabbath. If you don't, you're guilty and you should feel shame. When in reality, here's what the Sabbath is. Sabbath means stop working, take a break, take a vacation. That's probably, it wasn't the view of the Sabbath I was taught when I was raised in church. But how many of you feel tired and run down? The Sabbath actually gives you permission Here's what it means to trust God. Not that magically God will help you feel better. The Sabbath gives you permission to take a break. God says you need a break. You need rest. Stop working. Stop the busyness. Get some rest. You're not a slave. It's good news. You're not a slave. You have the right to stop working and get some rest. I had a religion professor one time tell me, um, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just get some sleep. Sometimes the best thing for your spiritual life is just go to bed. And that was like news to me in the, in the atmosphere that I had been raised in. But perhaps that's what it means to trust God. Do you feel like you don't have any you know, people to talk to? We all need community. 
We have a membership class coming up this Wednesday. It's all about community. We all need that. But at the same time, maybe prayer. Maybe prayers are an opportunity to trust God. Once again, most of us have been raised in an atmosphere where we see our religion and our spirituality through a legal framework. I don't pray enough. I'm bad because I don't pray enough. I should pray more. And it's guilt-producing and shame-producing. Maybe trusting God means this. Like the Psalms. Like the songs we sing today. You can be honest about the full range of human emotions. The Psalms say things that good little Christian kids would never say. They're way more honest than I was raised to be. Maybe prayer is saying to God, God, I'm tired of all just the messed up ridiculousness I'm experiencing. And maybe, maybe it's praying like that instead of doom scrolling before you go to bed or when you wake up in the morning. Maybe that's what it means to trust God. Not that God will magically make things better, but trusting God that actually does lead to shalom and well-being. Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus says, I want you to experience shalom. And if your view of religion, your, whatever it means to trust God, if that's not producing shalom, then you need a new view of religion. That's not what it means to trust God. It means something else. So you give yourself permission to experience well-being. That's us personally. What about collectively? If we said well, we're living in the time we're living in that's so difficult for all of us emotionally. So I'm going to take steps to, to be more healthy emotionally in my own life. And let's be honest, here's where we are in 2024 and 2025. Will America be a democracy? We're not really sure. That's where we are. And so if we said, well, we're not sure what country we're even going to live in a few years from now. Hey, but I've learned to play guitar. I took up a hobby for my emotional. If that's all we do, if we just address our emotional, our personal emotional health, we're still living in an environment that makes it incredibly difficult for us and for everybody to experience emotional well-being. William Swartley was a professor emeritus of the New Testament at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary until his death in 2019. He writes this, it's an article called The Relation of Justice and Righteousness to Shalom. Shalom is indeed a gift, but its maintenance in human life depends upon a human response to God's order that values and acts in accord with the divine moral order for human society. These moral values include justice and righteousness. Hebrew and Greek words for justice uh, in both testaments occur a thousand times. This shows how enormously important justice is in scripture and it leads to shalom. Justice and righteousness in the Bible doesn't mean throwing somebody in prison and that's justice. Justice and righteousness in the Bible means doing what is right by everybody. And we saw in verses five and six, let's just look at it again quickly as we wrap up in Isaiah chapter 26. On that day, God will humble those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down in the dust. Feet trample it down. Whose feet? The feet of the oppressed. The footsteps of the poor. And so Isaiah the prophet realized for collective shalom, what needs to happen is a leveling of the playing field. That society that where some people are high and lofty and most people are down low, 
that's not going to produce shalom. Collectively, as a people, we can't experience well-being when there's that kind of inequality. So what God wants to do is level the playing field to make society healthier for everybody. And so you and I can experience personal emotional well-being. And we can partner with God to create a society that is emotionally healthier for everybody. Perhaps that's what it means to trust God. So when your friend says, well, just trust God. Well, you can sit down and you can have a pretty long conversation about what that means. And then finally, if we're replacing myths with the truth and we're becoming aware of our emotions and we're giving ourselves permission to journey towards well-being, perhaps really trusting God, actually trusting God, what it really means, will make you emotionally healthier after this hardship than you were before. There is a little bit of good news that's already come out of the pandemic. According to the Cleveland Clinic, there's a survey in, in, here this year, 82% of respondents strongly agree that mental health, long marginalized by many Americans, is just as important as physical health, a, a substantial increase over the 68% who strongly agreed in 2018. In just three years, the percentage of Americans who said mental health is as important as physical health went from 68% to 82%. There's less stigma. We're becoming more aware of how important it is. 33% of Americans said the pandemic has taught them to be more empathetic toward others. 32% said it's helped them learn uh, positive coping behaviors to handle stress and anxiety. And 30% said the pandemic has increased their desire to give back and help others. Maybe, maybe you're one of those, 33, 32, or 30. In my own life, out of that counseling experience I told you about, I've experienced for myself that because of the hardship, I'm probably emotionally healthier now than I would have been had I not gone through that in the first place. Because I picked up uh, skills. I, I, I had to work at it. It, well, it didn't come naturally for me. I had to put in work and learn how to journey towards wellness. To I know I came from wellness and I was journeying towards wellness. Freudian slip. So I want to close with this. In that counseling experience, I was able to deal with some of the emotion that I felt um, out of my childhood that I shared about. And uh, my biological father had not been in my life. I met him when I was 19 years old. I sought him out. And we talked twice when I was 19, and then, and, and then uh, I sent him a Father's Day card sometime after that and didn't get a response, and at some point, about 15 years ago, he had contacted me out of the blue, and uh, somewhat shockingly, had said some things that were kind of hurtful to me, and I thought, who does that? You know, not really involved in your child's life, and then you say things that are hurtful, and that brought it all up again. And actually, it was fortuitously, it was during the time that I was in counseling when that happened. And I shared with my wife one night, standing in our kitchen, this is back when we lived in Ohio, and, and I shared um, you know, that he had contacted me and he had said these things. And, and she said, well, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, I mean, it hurts. It, it brought up some of that old stuff. But it's also been a blessing in disguise. Because as I've been going through this counseling program, even a, even a year ago, it would have hurt 
a lot worse, but over the past several years, and especially in this counseling experience, I've learned to process some of those feelings, and I've grieved that loss, that loss of not having a dad in my life. And so I said, you know, while it, it, it still does hurt, it's still there, its power is a lot less than it used to be. What I said, as weird as this sounds, I remember telling her this, as weird as this sounds, I've learned through this counseling experience that I can kind of be my own father. And I said, I know it sounds, it sounds dumb, but I, I've learned what it, what, it, what it looks like to love somebody and to care for them. And I, I've been able to kind of turn that towards myself and fill in some of the gaps, even self-talk. You know, what would a father say to their child? And I didn't hear those things from my dad, but I can say those words to myself even. So I know it sounds silly, but I've learned that I can kind of be my own father and it'll make me a better father someday. And that was a Thursday night. On Sunday, we came home from the church service where I worked and we sat down for lunch, we ate, and then my wife kind of disappeared to another room and she came back holding a pregnancy test. And she told me, we're gonna have a baby. And nine months later, or a little less, my son was born. And I thought to myself, when she showed me that test right after we had the conversation, isn't that just like God? To take something that was painful, that affected me for years and years, but I had an experience of healing where I was able to talk about it, grieve it, process it, and have this insight that I can, I can be a father to myself. I can, I can provide even for myself things that my dad didn't give me. And then a few days later, I found out that I would be a dad and be able to provide that to my son. And I was not thankful, I don't wanna say I was thankful for what I experienced, but I was thankful in the experience that I had because I think it actually made me a better dad than I would have been had I not learned, had to go through all that hard time and learn how to be emotionally healthy. And so the time we're living in has given us, has given us an opportunity to learn how to live well emotionally because it's been so difficult. For some of us, our religion is actually what's gotten in the way and prevented us from seeking shalom, well-being. But God's goal for everybody, including you, is shalom. Trusting God doesn't mean that magically God will make everything better. Trusting God means learning to practice shalom personally and collectively as a people to create the kind of society that helps us all journey toward shalom and emotional wellness. May the last few years actually help us to intentionally practice shalom and experience well-being. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we live in a time that is so difficult that it's hard to even talk about it. It's hard to prepare a sermon about it because it brings up emotion that we just, we don't even want to feel and we don't want to feel it around other people. And a lot of us don't even want to be honest that we feel it because we're tired of it. It has been exhausting. 
And at the same time, God, it's presented an opportunity. First of all, we're being forced to think about our own wellness because we're living in a time that is attacking our wellness personally and as a society. So we're being forced to think about it. And for some of us, we are already struggling. Some already were struggling with mental illness and and just the normal pressures of, of everyday American life before all of this started happening. And now it's just compounded. God, for those of us whose religious experience has made it harder to experience well-being, we pray for your healing. And we don't pray that you would just magically heal us. Of course, we want you to intervene and touch our lives and lead us to the right people and the right experiences. But we know, God, that trusting you doesn't just mean that you'll magically fix everything. But trusting you to help us heal means picking up the phone, calling a friend, and talking, grieving, expressing, getting online and looking for a counselor, maybe exploring a psychiatrist and medication, if that would be helpful. To choose to take steps to become aware of how we feel and why, and to give ourselves permission to journey towards well-being. And then God, we believe through the eyes of faith, through trusting you, and then taking steps to live out our trust, that we actually can be people who can experience shalom and well-being even more than we did before. That we can be emotionally healthier because of this experience. We're certainly not thankful for everything that's happened and it continues to happen. But we can be thankful in it that you can lead us to be people who are living more well than we were before. We thank you for your healing that comes from actually trusting you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.